Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I am very excited with the founder that we have today. I mean, he is an immigrant that came to this country with absolutely nothing. And his last company is now valued at $2.3 billion. So I think that that speaks for itself. I find that, you know, you're all going to find this episode super inspiring, you know, on how to build, how to scale, uh, you know, issues on the regulatory side, you know, when you're trying to build a business and everything beyond that. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Joe Spector. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So originally you were born in Uzbekistan, but then all of a sudden you find yourself here in the U.S. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Growing up, in many ways, it was, you know, it's wonderful, but it's such a, it's such a world apart. I grew up in USSR, a communist system, a system where you cannot question authority a system where you are, you know, brainwashed to believe in, in the power of the state. And uh, as a Jew, uh, a, a fairly anti-Semitic system as well. But because it's such a closed society, you don't really know that there's anything else. You really think that the entire world lives like this. And um, it was only after we left and, and I came to America that I started to realize that there are a million, you know, different cultures and peoples and ways of thinking. I mean, you come here and starting from nothing, you know, for the family, I'm sure that that was dealing with the uncertainty too, no? It's like new everything. It was. I give a lot of, of credit to my parents because at the time I think they really shielded us and I, I was 10 years old but you're still a child and they never made us feel like there's anything necessarily wrong um, and even I remember when we came here we were poor I mean we lived in subsidized housing on food stamps and I still felt like we were kings uh, because they made us feel that we're in this land of opportunity and we have so much more that we could get to. So I, I think looking back, I'm like, I think, oh my gosh, you know, we, we have, you know, now I have three kids and I realized that the difference in opportunity and experiences that they have. But at the time, I think my parents really shielded us and, and I give a lot of credit to them for that. Well, I mean, it's still at 10 years old. I mean, you, you realize things. So I'm sure that, you know, seeing your parents, you know, like working hard, trying to give you guys a better life. I mean, that, that's stuff that you, I'm sure it really shaped you up, you know, and who you are today. It does. You know, my, both my parents were civil engineers and in the first year while we were adjusting, my dad was working at flea markets as a day laborer. And so that was very humbling. But I think now as an entrepreneur, at the same time, you know, one of the things we say at Dutch is no one's too good to take out the garbage. And it just means 
we all can roll up our sleeves and do the shit that needs to get done. And no one's too good for that. So, and and I definitely think of that experience with my dad uh, during these moments. So tell us about, you know, also getting into, into business because, you know, the whole world of business and, and finance, you know, is something that, uh, you know, got you hooked, you know, and you actually went into uh, Berkeley, you know, and you kind of like got started, you know, and got your feet wet before going into, into Wall Street. So, um, so walk us through that. I would say from the moment we got to America, I realized that this is the land of opportunity and my, I, from, from everything I saw. Uh, and I, um, I, I wanted to, I, I, I saw that being an entrepreneur is, is the, is the way to really make it here, make a, have a vision and, and have an impact. Um, I think I've always, I always had it in me where I didn't like to listen to authority or follow the rules and be creative. And ultimately, you know, even though I started my career in investment banking, I think I quickly realized that it just, it wasn't going to fit with my personality. And really, once I got into Wharton and business school is when I kind of met my brethren and realized that this is a whole career that could exist, which I didn't need being an immigrant, didn't realize that was an option. Um, and starting in business school is when I started to really commit to startups and commit to starting new ideas and executing on them. I mean, what a, what a journey here, eh? because I mean, your parents come with nothing and then all of a sudden you're like literally admitted to the best schools in the world to study. I mean, Wharton, uh, MBA, you know, incredible program. The community is, is out of this world. Uh, and, um, and there, I mean, as you were saying, you know, that's when you really got your first experience with entrepreneurship, you know, when you entered their business plan competition. So what, what could you hook, what could you hook to entrepreneurship? What, why, why, why was it so impactful for you? It sounds like it was like a mind blowing experience. You were like, Oh my God, I can't believe this. <laughs> I think I, you know, there's these moments where there's this intersection of who you realize who you are and you, uh, so, you know, you go through life in those early stages and you think, you know, am I weird or like, is this, are there other people who are like me? Are there, is this something I can make a living from? And I think I hid that intersection at Wharton where I realized there's a whole world, there's all these people who basically can dream up of an idea and then go do it. And at the time, I think that was so unfathomable and so crazy, you know, because in Russia and everything I saw before, you go, you have a job and you work there and you work up the ladder and that's, that's it. I didn't know otherwise. I didn't know there was another option. And I remember the business plan competition at Wharton, that first moment, I it was it was like a jumping over a canyon. I just I remember thinking, how am I? And I were like, you know, who am I to think of an idea? Who am I? How am I going to even start to get this going? It feels like 
like they say, like climbing Mount Everest. And I think it's just a muscle you build where you just realize, yeah, you're not going to climb it in one day, but you just take one step at a time and then you see the progress. But being able to take that jump, I think in business school and the safety of it and starting to see some examples of other people who are doing it allow me to just start taking that jump. Um, and I think ever since then, you know, it's a high. It feels exhilarating to be able to have a vision, to start executing against it, to start seeing results. And as you do it, you get more certainly confident and you learn from your mistakes. But I really owe a lot to Wharton for creating that space for me to really start taking that jump. I'm talking about creating. I think that you also learn about creating luck, right? And, and I find that luck is always preparation meets opportunity because what you did right after Wharton is you go to Silicon Valley where, you know, it's the, the land of innovation, you know, when it comes to, to launching startups. And, uh, you know, one thing led to the next and then all of a sudden you meet Andy Dudum. And uh, Andy, for the listeners, you know, he's also been on the show. That was a great episode. But you met Andy and that, basically, you know, was a, was a shift. A hundred percent. I say that quote all the time, luck, because people say you're so lucky. And, you know, it's, it's never like that. And this was 10, 15 years of busting my butt in Silicon Valley before um, and, and being ready to be prepared, you know, to have this moment. And by the way, when I met Andrew, he, the first thing he did is he told me to go away. So even that, it wasn't a given. Um, he, at the time, was working on another company, and he was heads down. And I remember he, he said, seemed like a smart guy. He seemed driven, but I, I'm busy. Let's just let's stay in touch. And I think by that point, I was already in the framework of I don't take no for an answer, especially when you see opportunities. And at, I remember um, the Atomic Studio where he worked and where Hims was born was such a is still you know such a special place with so many incredibly smart, well connected, thoughtful folks. I was not going to let that go. So I actually pestered him for several weeks uh, until finally he um, relented and said, you know, we've been, um, Hims at the time was called Club Room. And he said, you know, we've been kicking around this hair loss idea and no one has time to work on it. You know, why don't you see what, you know, where this goes? So I didn't let him, I didn't let this opportunity slip by. Uh, and I also made it super easy for him to say yes uh, and, and give me a try. And again, these are all, this is all preparation that I kind of learned over that time. But um, meeting him was definitely an incredible experience and 100% agree. Um, in, in some ways, it was luck, but it was uh, a lot of preparation that led up to it, making the most of that moment. So then what happened next? Because uh, it sounds like they were, you know, hitting a block, you know, and then all of a sudden you come into the picture and then, and then what happened? I think some, one of my secret superpowers is I am 
so results driven and I'm a workhorse and with hymns, um, again, I had been through Silicon Valley enough to know kind of shitty ideas or ideas that may sound good on paper, but are not good in reality. And I felt like what we were trying to solve, you know, it was a hard problem um, because it was highly, it's in a highly regulated space of, you know, delivering medicine. And it was in an area that was ripe for disruption because the current competition of the time in hair loss and erectile dysfunction was doing a terrible job of branding. So I saw a lot of opportunity. Um, and then, like I said, I think my secret weapon is um, execution and results. And Hims was, and still, it's such an incredibly magical place because we, from, but from the very early moment, we were seeing incredible results. Now, granted, this was a different time. This was before iOS privacy. So on Facebook, you could get a read fairly quickly and you could run a lot of tests. But everything we were doing, I remember, was working. Um, it's never like that, you know? And of course, when things work, you only want them to work faster and bigger and better. Uh, but we saw positive results almost from, from the very beginning. Um, and, and like you mentioned, you know, you know, Andrew will say we did a million dollars of sales in our first weekend. Um, that's true. You know, once we went live, it was kind of, I, you know, you ask any of the investors in, in hymns and it's their best, you know, performing company because it just did so incredibly well. And, and it's the same thing, you know, I think it, right place, right time. Um, the right people were there to do the right things and took advantage of the right opportunity. So what was that tweak that needed to be done so that uh, you guys went from like, you know, kicking the heads and hitting the wall to all of a sudden, you know, a million bucks in the first weekend? It's connecting the dots. The running this business is operationally complex. You have to have pharmacies that deliver all over the U.S. So that's kind of one thing. And at the time, you have to find the pharmacy that's going to, you know, no pharmacy wanted to touch a telemedicine business. So it was, it's finding that right network and, and having a pleasant experience. It was investing in brand. We had um, this company that no longer exists, uh, Jim Lane, that did some of our branding work and just created a beautiful experience for hair loss, for erectile dysfunction that had never been done before. So that was a huge unlock. And, you know, this was a different time and place. This was a time when we could raise 50 to $200 million every 90 days. So we could run beautiful New York subway ads and Giants baseball toilet ads and be super innovative in our marketing. And we were even from the very beginning thinking about 24 months ahead because we had that cash runway. So um, kind of making the long-term investments and then doing the super complicated logistic operational things, I think those were the unlocks we did. And we were just moving crazy fast. When, when we launched, 
from from that million dollars of sales by uh, a month after launch we had already raised the series b at a 200 million dollar valuation wow so it's it was uh maybe still is one of the fastest growing dtc businesses because we were also just working our butts off and moving so fast and for the people that are listening to really get it, what what ended up being the business model of Hims? Hims, it was a it's a subscription model. So um, initially, it was just Hims and and men pay for a visit with a doctor, and then the doctor, if appropriate, writes a prescription for hair loss for erectile dysfunction. We ended up getting into a, a whole bunch of other conditions like skincare and mental health. And then we launched hers uh, um, to do the same thing on the women's side. Partnered with some, you know, with celebrities like Snoop Dogg and J Lo and A Rod, and you know, still to this day, continue to open up new verticals and continue to invest in just an incredibly beautiful brand. And uh, it sounds like you guys were like like a sky, like a literally like rocketing. You know, right, right off the get go, like since that first weekend that you launched this thing, how much, how much capital did the company raise prior to the company going public? Um, I don't. It's too. I, I want to say maybe close to five hundred million dollars, maybe three to five hundred million. It was a lot. Three to five hundred million. Got it. And uh, and and let's 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 talk about. Being able to raise money, as you were saying, you know, obviously different times, but also you guys were at a position of leverage. You know, typically companies are like raising money because they need the money. I mean, here you guys were like really kicking butt. So so how does it look like when you're raising money and you're at, a, at that ideal position of leverage where you can like you're in a you're like metrics are like off the roof and you can literally pick anyone that you want to pick to to invest in your company? How How do you go about that? What does that look like? How do you go about picking the right people? What was that process like? Look, at the, um, you still have, even when people are giving you money, still has a price, money still has a price. And so there's definitely folks who would come and want to give us money, but not at the valuation that we wanted. And you always want the least possible dilution. So you're trying to find a partner who's giving you valuation you want, but at the same time, you also want partners who are actually going to be helpful to your business as you know, and not be a distraction. So you're still wanting that combo of, uh, of, of a good partner, but also not wanting to be diluted. Because by the way, some of the best VCs are not going to give you the valuation that you really want. So you still have to have that negotiation. Yeah. And then how was the uh, process of taking the company public? The first word that comes to mind, just it still feels surreal. When you take a step back and you look at the odds and you look at the statistics, uh, going and as fast as we did, it's just nearly impossible odds. Like I do remember a year before really realizing that like we are going to go public this is this is going to happen and i just couldn't believe i couldn't believe that again for an immigrant who 
came here, you know, my family and I came here with a hundred dollars and one, one suitcase. Literally, that's what we had to be able to have the chance to take a company that I started public. I still, to this day, I just, I pinch myself. I just can't believe that happened. And so, so I think first it's surreal, but of course, once you start, uh, you, um, you know, when you're a private company, it's different. Now you have to file with the SEC, you have to have earnings call. So it just, you know, it's, uh, it becomes, uh, a different game. You have to be incredibly buttoned up, uh, and your operations have to rise to a whole new level. So I think in that sense, it was like, Oh God, even though I'm so used to a lot of the legislative and the regulatory matters um this is obvious this was obviously a whole new level so yeah so much more regulation but a super surreal moment hey guys so pardon the interruption here so i gotta tell you that you know for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired you don't have to be alone you know there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy with methodology with process and it's very hard and already doing your business alone it's super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So, Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And let's talk about the surreal moment. Because all of a sudden, you know, you, as you were mentioning, you come to the U.S. with a hundred bucks and with a suitcase, you know, with a family, and then all of a sudden you have financial freedom. How does that? How does that? Uh, what What does that feel like? And then also, what What did you do? You know, with, once you had, you know, money in the bank. You know, I still have PTSD from the immigrant experience because. In in that time when we left, um, we lived in this refugee camp in Italy. Um, I would say basically as, as homeless people for, I mean, maybe slightly, you know, we, we had a, a tent. Uh, but I will, that experience, we, uh, that experience, I'll never forget it. And so on the one hand, um, it definitely feels like, incredible because you know we can take vacations and i can have a nice house but on the other hand i still have this feeling like this i could still be in that place 
in that homeless environment. And this could all be gone in a second. I never feel like um, I have a base. I think this could all be gone. And so I think in the sense, I really want to live every day like it could be my last and try to live it to the fullest. Um, and so I think, you know, when it comes to Dutch, I still, I'm working, I'm working harder than I did at Hims. Um, because here I'm the CEO and this is um, even more my company. Uh, and so I still, um, I think I, I would have thought that, yeah, like you, you make several million dollars and you can just chill. And that hasn't been how I feel. I still feel like I have a lot to prove and this could all be gone. So then let's talk about that. So, um, you know, you take Hims public, you know, right now is say valued at 2.3 billion. Um, incredible experience, incredible journey. Why, you know, turning page? Why starting again from, from nothing, you know, like building something from the ground up? Maybe I, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm a masochist, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, there is, it's a high, there is something incredibly thrilling about that zero to one about creating the universe. And, you know, right now, one of the things that's going on is I'm working on bills in four states of changing the veterinary telemedicine law. And it's incredible. You know, I think, I, I feel that as humans, we have such a short time here on this earth. And if I, uh, if I can feel like I can make some sort of an impact, that feels incredibly satisfying. And so working on this legislation to change the law, which will increase access and increase affordability for millions of people, that is such a high. And I feel like I still have it in me to make big changes. And I think that's kind of like what I learned from Hims is it's only worth doing if you're going to do something big and you're going to have a big impact. Otherwise, it's uh, it doesn't feel like it's something that's worth spending your time my time on. And I think Dutch felt like I could still have a pretty major impact. I think coming into this business, when I looked at the pet landscape, I was the only entrepreneur that had the regulatory experience and the big brand experience to make an impact. And I felt like very excited um, and very um, uh, what's the word uh, optimistic about being able to really make another impact in this uh, tangential but uh, you know adjacent space. That's amazing. So then tell us, what are you guys doing at Dutch? How are you guys making money? Very similar. It's, you know, it's telemedicine and it's a subscription business. Um, there's definitely differences. We focus on setting up pet parents with a video call with a veterinarian. Um, and then that veterinarian could either give you advice or could write a prescription for an issue that they're trying to solve. Uh, you know, some of the biggest differences uh, versus hymns is it's all video. You know, we don't have forms. We don't have kind of, you know, 
it's not it's all real time video because you know you're dealing with you know with a dog with a cat that you kind of have to see in person and it's new telemedicine you know when hims got on the scene you already had companies like teledoc that were public and so that behavior was much more accepted in the human field on the pet side we're having to do a lot more education we're having to you know a lot of people don't even realize that they could have a video call with a vet and a lot of people don't even realize how much money they could save by doing telemedicine versus in person i think you were saying you know and say and this was my experience i don't know that when i go to a vet and i you know a, you know i'll get a bill of 400 or more and being able to you know our service at dutch it's 12 dollars a month so it's the best deal in town you'll never be able to see a vet same day for 12 bucks and um and we allow up to five pets and and the medication is far cheaper than in person so you know it's a it's an amazing service we have to do a lot more education and then there's still big states like California and Texas that don't allow this type of service. So we're also working on changing the law. Uh, but I think, you know, as with HIMS, the I think the tide is on our side and it's a matter of time before all 50 states allow this. And I guess uh, for this, I mean, you, you also have raised some money. Uh, I mean, it, it's been like no time. You know, in, in 2021, you did the seed, you know, then you did the, the A round. So how how much capital have you guys raised to date and and i'm sure that raising money this time around was a little bit easier since it was you know you're a very much a proven founder so i'm sure it was it was different i always think you know it i'm sure it's easier but it's not easy because i i i did think it was going to be easier than than it was but it wasn't uh i think there's there were so many concerns around pet telemedicine, about the regulatory laws, about ability to acquire customers. So I, I think in many ways, it was actually still incredibly hard. And we've now raised $30 million. So knock on wood, you know, we're in a really good position. But it's definitely, it's a very different environment. When, you know, at Hims, we could be looking at an 18, even a 24-month payback period, right? Meaning how long, how much we were willing to spend to acquire a customer. And that's just not the case today. Uh, we have to be almost profitable from the beginning. Uh, and I think in many ways, that's made us um, a superior company because in the end, you know, HIMS as a stock was being punished for a long time for being unprofitable. And... So it gets you one way or another. I think that we're a very strong company as a result of this uh, recession or this you know, economic environment that we're in. Uh, and it'll make fundraising easier the next time we're out in market. But um, I, I still think it was incredibly hard. And I think oftentimes um, what I'm so happy with the, with the folks who are my lead investors is I think they um, we connect with them on a personal level. I think they understand what makes me tick and what makes me a good entrepreneur. 
And that was important to me, especially in, in those early series investors of finding people who can understand um, me as an individual, because then they can help me, you know, they can help me be better because they know me and, and what it takes for me to win. And tell us about pet health as well versus human health. So I think one of the maybe mistakes I made is to assume that there are so many similarities, um, but there's actually a lot of differences. The financial incentives are quite different, and that leads to very different behaviors. So in human health, about 90% of us in the United States have insurance, whereas on the pet health side, less than 3% have insurance. And what that means is that pet health is almost an entirely cash pay market. And because of that, you don't have an insurance set of players who are regulating the industry. You have, you know, it's, it's cash. And so oftentimes brick and mortar veterinarians really are incentivized and talk about creating incentives based on what they call production quotas, meaning that they order the extra x-ray, they give you the extra set of pills, um, because that's how they build their practice. Whereas human doctors build their practice on service, on the services that they provide. Uh, and they don't care you know, if you go to CVS or, or Walgreens to fulfill your prescription doesn't matter to them because there's a single set of or, or a fairly similar set of prices that insurance companies have created. Um, and so be, as a result of all of this, there's many brick and mortar vets who really don't want telemedicine because they think it will take away their ability to upsell you on all these products. And look, at the end of the day, we have to do what's best for consumers. And ultimately, what's best for consumers is going to win in the long run. But the fact is, there's almost 200 million pets in this country, you know, and pets are like all biological creatures have problems, but they'll always need to be seen in person, you know, it, and then there, by the way, there, the, the other thing that's crazy that I didn't realize is how little vets make the, um, The, the average vet makes about $100,000 a year. I mean, it's incredible. They go through almost the same amount of schooling. They come out with several hundred thousand in loans. And they make on average, like I said, $100,000. It's not nearly enough to pay off their bills. Um, in fact, vets have, um, vets have a three times the national suicide rate. Three times. People often think of dentists, but actually vets um, are incredibly depressed because they love animals and they go into an industry where they make actually very little money. So telemedicine um, is a great opportunity for them because we actually pay vets almost double what the industry pays them and they can actually work from home. And um, so that's been, that's been the cool part about telemedicine is that's actually a a huge win for consumers, but it's actually a huge win for the industry as well. And you were talking too about the long run. So let's talk about that. Let's say you were to go to sleep tonight. 
and you wake up in a world, Joe, where the vision of Dutch is fully realized. What does that world look like? You know, ultimately, we're a, we're a global brand, and people come to Dutch for um, the ability for that first interaction. They can talk to someone in real time, talk to a veterinarian in real time, and if they need be, get a prescription delivered within a matter of hours. And that's actually, I think, one of the reasons I wanted to name the company Dutch is because I wanted it to have this global, ubiquitous um, brand that can grow into a variety of areas. You know, just recently, we launched an integration with a lab testing. So you can actually, you know, we talked about the, the how much money you, you spend on on x-rays and labs. We actually partnered with someone who uh, sends you something uh, at home for one-fourth of the price you pay in person. So having more and more services that you can do from home and doing it at a national and ultimately a global scale is the ultimate vision. I love that. So obviously here we're talking about the future. So let's talk about now the past, but doing it with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to those moments where you were, you know, in Wharton, you know, there in Philly. And um, let's say you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that younger Joe and being able to give that younger Joe a piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I, I would say kind of one mistake I made early on that I tell myself is spend the time to get to know people, to build your network, because as a CEO, you know, some of your main responsibilities are hiring people, fundraising, and having strategy and a vision. And I think I jumped into starting something before I had any of those things. So I would say, you know, spend the time in the industry you want and soak up as much of it as possible from learning from people and then and then jumping into it yourself. So let's double click here. Let's say now you're able to go even earlier. Let's say you're able to, you know, really sit down with that younger kid, you know, that uh, 10 year old that uh, was perhaps in that refugee camp in Italy, you know, living literally under a tent and dealing with all that uncertainty, you know, surrounding the family. What would you tell that kid? I think I, I would say experience things that are different and that are all just that you may not even know where it goes now. Because I think at that time, I, maybe this is the Russian in me or the survival, you're so practical. But I would say, get into experiences, get into situations, uh, talk to people that are so different than who you are, that think, you know, so differently. Um, because I think that's kind of how your world opens up, is by realizing the possibilities and the differences uh, and not being... Um, maybe at, at the time as narrow-minded as I was in the earlier days. I think maybe another, um, kind of the other thing that I give my earlier self-advice is to be comfortable in my own skin. 
I think um, now that I'm older and just I am who I am, but I remember earlier it was I had a feeling like I'm not salesman enough. I'm not uh, introverted enough, and and thinking that's what I need if I want to be you know the caricature of a CEO or an, or an entrepreneur or an executive. And I always felt that that's another reason, like that's not me because I'm not this idea of who I think a CEO is or who I think an entrepreneur is. And I think what I, what I would say is there is no caricature. It's all about results. If you can achieve results, you can be whatever. And so I've learned now over time to be more confident and just realizing I am who I am and this has worked for me. And there's going to be others who are going to potentially get to the same result or better in a different way. And that's okay. Um, there's not one way to do it. I love it, Joe. So for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Email me, joe at dutch.com. Amazing. Well, hey, Joe, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. What a fun chat. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.